Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss scientific principles for optimising human performance. I am Dr. Phil Price, and on today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Matt Lee, a postdoctoral research fellow from the Institute of Sport and Health at Victoria University in Melbourne. Now, it was originally thought that you couldn't develop strength and endurance simultaneously because of something called the interference effect. There are certain molecular, hormonal or neuromuscular adaptations which occur that when you train for both at the same time, they blunt the other. So, for example, if you're training to develop strength and you do a load of endurance work on top of that, that endurance work would actually disrupt your strength adaptations. However, it's not as simple as that. And there are a lot of factors like training intensity or the recovery time between sessions that we as coaches can actually manipulate to try and reduce the interference effect as much as possible. Dr. Matt Lee is a research specialist in concurrent training. And on today's episode, we actually focus on where the interference effects was first discovered, what certain training factors can actually blunt adaptations, and what you can do to train strength and endurance simultaneously. I want to take a moment to express my gratitude to my production partner, Cult Media. Cult Media has been instrumental in the development and success of the Progress Theory. They have created brand guides, comprehensive podcast strategies, enhanced the podcast production, developed custom workflows for me, and edited and mixed all of the video, audio, and social media content. Cult Media's simple coach, create, and collaborate process has saved me hundreds of hours in podcast production, resolved countless technical issues, and consistently helped me to improve my podcasting game. So if you want to establish and engage your audience or are ready to launch your own podcast, head to www.cult.media, that's cult with a K, to learn more. Also, thank you to Human24, fueling human potential and optimizing everyday human performance and well-being. The supplement range at Human24 not only helps improve your lifestyle, it optimizes it. The Human24 products are designed to fit around your circadian rhythms from the moment you wake up to key moments in the day when you need optimal focus to getting the best night's sleep. There is a product to optimize each phase of the day. My personal favorite is the Live On Form Pack, consisting of the products Rise, Flow, and Pre-Sleep. Rise is for the morning, and it's my absolute favorite. It's a drink that tastes amazing, it hydrates me, and improves my focus to win the morning. At 2 p.m., I take Flow, which is a caffeine-free nootropic, perfect for improving alertness and concentration during that mid-afternoon slump. And finally, I take pre-sleep just before bed, which is a comprehensive nighttime complex, perfect to support a performance-driven lifestyle. Check out the website www.hmn24.com for all their products, articles, and links to their awesome podcast for those wanting to learn more about human performance. You can even check out the episode I did with them. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Phil Lerney, co-founder of Human24, and it has led to an awesome collaboration with Human24 supporting the progress theory. If you want a 10% discount on all Human24 products, head to their website via the links in our Instagram bios of the progress theory or my personal Instagram account at Dr. Phil Price, or use the code PhilPrice at checkout. As always, follow The Progress Theory on Instagram, YouTube, and head to theprogresstheory.com to our website where you can see all of our other episodes. So here is Dr. Matt Lee. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. Obviously, this is all for the new series of The Progress Theory, and we're going a bit niche 
with this series, you know, really focusing on concurrent training or certainly how we can develop, you know, endurance sport and, uh, and a strength sport kind of simultaneously. So having you on and your expertise in this area is really great. So thank you so much for coming on. Do you want to yeah, give a bit of an introduction to yourself? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I'm originally from the UK. Hopefully you can still hear from my, my accent. I often get pulled up by friends and family that I'm, I'm sounding more Aussie every time I call home. But I'm from, from Leighton Buzzard in Bedfordshire and studied at Liverpool John Moores University. I did my undergrad in, in sports science and then stayed on to do sports physiology. And then I, I always had sort of aspirations of, of doing a, a PhD and had sort of applied for a few places in the UK, wasn't successful at the time, so I was just working for a sports supplement manufacturer for a little bit, which was, which was kind of cool, sort of see a bit of the industry side of things. And then was approached by John Bartlett, who became my, my PhD supervisor. He moved over to, to Australia to work for the Western Bulldogs Australian football team. And... Victoria University, where I, where I currently work, and the Bulldogs have a, have a partnership. And he, he mentioned that he was looking to set up some PhD projects and one in particular in, in concurrent training. And yeah, it get, gave me the opportunity to sort of put an application for that. And yeah, moved over here in 2015. So I'm in, in Melbourne at the, the Institute for Health and Sport at Victoria University. And then I, I did my PhD, finished in 2019. So that was with John Bartlett and Professor David Bishop. And then I I was fortunate enough at the end of, end of my PhD to be offered a, a postdoc position to stay on in, in David's lab and continue working as part of a, a research partnership that he set up with the um, Australian Defence Force. So my, my current research, my postdoc position at the moment is, I guess, in, investigating nutritional strategies to enhance exercise adaptations and, and, and performance with a, a specific focus now on sort of manipulating post-exercise carbohydrate intake and the effects that that has on on training adaptations yeah i think that's always a stop tour of my my, my background oh that's cool and that explains a lot so obviously <laughs> reading around concurrent training like i came across your work and one of the reasons why i i contacted you and i did notice yeah. on your research a little bit of a change in direction towards the recent papers that you've released so yeah that does make sense around sort of carbohydrate strategies and uh, that t- particular area. Yeah, yeah. So when I when I was back at John Moore's during my master's, uh, my master's dissertation was with Professor James Morton and, and Graham Close. And so that's also the link with, with John because John was doing his PhD at John Moore's when I was doing my master's. So we sort of, and, and James was his supervisor. So there was kind of a connection there. That's kind of how we knew each other and had a few mutual friends. And then, yeah, obviously then when, when he moved over here and was looking for people to you might be interested in doing a PhD, sort of, yeah, reached out to me. But yeah, the, the master's was in sort of, yeah, carbohydrate and, and hydration strategies to support half marathon performance. And sports nutrition was kind of something I, I became really interested in, in um, yeah, in my undergrad and in my, in my master's. And and then, yeah, you know, concurrent training came along through the, the PhD with John. And, and now I've sort of transitioned back a little bit into, into sort of nutritional strategies, but, you know, still... I feel like I've got a bit of work to do in, in concurrent training as well. They sound like they're linked very well together, like the transitions are very fluid because yeah. nutrition is one of the key factors which could affect, uh, well, affect the effectiveness of concurrent training. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's, I'm probably going to end up repeating myself a lot today, but it's, it's a, certainly an area in concurrent training that has received little attention. You know, and the sort of the nutritional recommendations to optimize concurrent training adaptations are kind of limited to an extent to, to, to research that's been conducted in endurance only or resistance only studies. There's been you know, very little stuff looking at what happens when we bring these both together in a, in a training program, whether it's the same day or, or you know, the same, same week. There's been a few acute studies looking at protein intake and the effect that that has on stimulating protein synthesis and and my like the sort of molecular signal so mTOR is a classic sort of signaling pathway and uh, protein involved in in resistance training adaptation so there's, there's been a few studies in that and I, I know of like one long-term training study looking at the effects of high protein diets on concurrent training adaptation yeah that's that's about it as far as I can think of so there's there's, there's a lot of areas to to unravel really why do you think that is? Why do you think there's a lack of research in the nutritional space regarding concurrent training? 
The first, the first, that's the first thing I was going to, I thought of is it's, it's really hard. <laughs> so, I mean, concurrent training studies themselves, well, just from my own experience, really challenging. You know, we, we really need more long-term training studies to really understand this interference effect and, and how it is affected by different, tra- you know, training variables. But it's, it's really challenging to get people to commit to a prolonged, a, a prolonged period. There's so much to control, like you say, and then on top of that, you know, as, as I mentioned in my current position, we've just started a, a, a new training study, a training and nutrition intervention. And it's, it just feels like it's, it's next level, like having to like organize, you know, people's training and get them to kind of adhere to the training program. But then on top of that, there's all this food prep and meal plans and all that that goes with it as well. It's just, it's, it's challenging. So you need, you know, you need uh, a lot of resources and a good team around you as well to to help facilitate that. Yeah, so I, th- I think that's why a lot of the studies you'll see are either acute studies or sort of, I don't know, 10 to, I think, 24, 24 weeks is sort of some of the larger, longer-term studies that, that I've seen. But yeah, it's just, it's just really, really challenging, I think. There's uh, definitely a few terms I'd like to go over, especially if there's anyone listening to the podcast who are kind of new to what concurrent training is. Do you want to, yeah... Let's start off with, could you explain what concurrent training is and then what is this interference effect? Yeah, definitely. So concurrent training is basically the term that's given to a training program that incorporates endurance and resistance training. So that might be performing endurance and resistance training in the same session or it might be in the same day but separated by you know, a few hours of recovery or, you know, performing them on different days. But an overall sort of training program that incorporates two different types of, of training, endurance and resistance, is, is concurrent training. And the, the interference effect that you mentioned is basically this idea and principle that, you know, adaptations to endurance and resistance training are very different when you, when you look at a 100% trained endurance athlete and, a, you know, a power lifter or a weight lifter that, you know, does no cardio, like the adaptations are very, very different. And so it's this, this idea that when we train them both together, that there's something about the, the, the training that interferes and we're not able to adapt to, you know, to the resistance training. So hallmark adaptations, strength, muscle mass, power, don't adapt or increase that as much when you combine it with endurance training compared to doing resistance training alone. And, and this was something that was first looked at back in 1980. So there's this classic study by Robert Hickson, which basically looked at, it was a 10-week training program and there was recreationally active men and women. And they trained either for 10 weeks, either performing resistance-only training, endurance-only training, or a combination of the two. And what they found is that over the course of the 10 weeks, the resistance-only group improved their, their leg press one rep max on a weekly basis. The endurance group improved their, their VO2 max. But what they found with the concurrent group is that when it came to the strength adaptations, the lower body strength, the one leg press 1RM, plateaued around sort of week seven and then even sort of began to decline over the, the subsequent three weeks of the program. And so it kind of brought about this idea that, yeah, putting, putting these two very different, very contrasting modes of training together may lead to some level of, of interference. And that first study by Hickson sort of considered the, the sort of seminal paper, very, you know, kind of founding work. And since then, there have been, you know, several studies showing that when you combine endurance and resistance together, that adaptations in, you know, dynamic strength, lean mass and power don't improve as much. But I, I guess when we look, you know, the 30 years of research has passed since that very first, first paper by Hickson. And now when we sort of look at the research as a whole, it actually seems that the interference effect to, and we, you know, we can dive in a little bit more to this, but the adaptations to strength and lean mass in particular aren't as susceptible to this interference effect as perhaps we, we thought. And it's, it's more explosive power that seems to be the... Um, the main main resistance variable that is that is susceptible to this interference effect, and I think the way the kind of field's developed over the last thirty years or so is that we've sort of gained an appreciation of how manipulating different training variables can dictate whether we see an interference effect and how much of an interference that that might get. Going back to that that first paper by Hickson, when we look at the actual training that they did, 
the participants were absolutely beasted. <laughs> they were lifting five days a week. And it was, I think even in the paper, it says like they were instructed to lift as much as you can. And it was around about 80% of their 1RM or more every, every session. And the endurance program itself was six days a week. It was three days a week of, of high intensity interval cycling. And the running as well, it was like run as fast as you can for 30 to 40 minutes. So, and then this, the concurrent groups did both of those. So yeah, no wonder they, they, they had an interference effect. Like, no, you, you can't train like that. But then, you know, since then there's been a number of studies exploring how we can kind of, you know, periodize our, our training and, and alter training variables to, to be able to try and, you know, maximize these adaptations. Yeah, I've, I've seen the Hickson paper and I was very surprised at the whole, you know, run as fast as you can for 30, 40 minutes because yeah. then I looked at the graph and I was like, I'm surprised they lasted to week seven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. knackered by week two and you probably start seeing a drop off. But uh, yeah, it was yeah, really cool to have a study that was a bit outlandish, the first one. Mm. It kind of helps yeah. with like, it provides a base for that additional critique, which you then utilize to then create more studies to investigate the area further but yeah yeah definitely fantastic work i just want to pick up on the idea around what you said about it's almost like a bit of a don't want to use the hierarchy but sort of like hypertrophy strength and sort of muscular power there seems to be this interference effect affects the muscular power or speed strength more than maybe the maximal strength and then hypertrophy is even less so it'd be really interesting to see what is it about endurance training or adding endurance training could affect the adaptations needed to develop those strength qualities. What kind of, I don't know if we're thinking neuromuscular or molecular, or what is it about the interference effect which could block or inhibit muscular strength or power adaptations? What is it about endurance training that then kind of inhibits it? the interference effect can sort of be broken down into two concepts really there's like an acute interference effect and a chronic effect so the acute effect is is things like residual fatigue from a prior session and this is particularly if you're if you're doing the two modes close together you know sometimes if it's in the same session or if you have a limited recovery between session that you know a level of residual fatigue and it may be neuromuscular fatigue not recovering and transferring over to the subsequent Resistance session. So, okay, let's think of this in the context of doing endurance first, then resistance. You do an endurance session and there's a, a, a level of fatigue that carries over. And so we also might have, you know, a level of, of muscle damage, muscle soreness, substrate depletion that altogether is going to have a negative effect on the quality of the subsequent training session. So, you know, if you're doing these in, in close succession, say we've done an endurance session first and, and then we're going straight into a resistance session, all of these factors may be affecting how much I'm able to, to, to lift in that resistance session. And, and there are studies showing from an acute perspective that a prior endurance session can ne- negatively af- affect strength performance. So there's studies that have looked at like the number of reps that you can do in a session and, and showing significant reductions compared to not having done that beforehand. And I guess likewise, that, that also kind of would translate for people doing resistance exercise first and going into an endurance session and, you know, the level of kind of neuromuscular fatigue and and muscle damage that you get from a resistance session may be also far greater than what you might get in an endurance session. And again, so then going into that endurance session, the the quality of the stimulus that you're giving the muscle may be reduced because of that, all those factors affecting fatigue and, and affecting the quality of your training session. And then from the the chronic side of things or the, the training side of things is like repeatedly performing suboptimal training sessions over a period of time is going to have a, a negative effect on, on your adaptations. If you're, not, if you're not training at your best, then you're not going to adapt to your best. And coupled with that is also just the inherent differences in, it, differences in, in endurance and resistance adaptations within the muscle. You know, it's kind of challenging the muscle of, of the different kind of metabolic and morphological and structural demands that it, that it needs to meet, whether it's been getting a, an endurance stimulus or a resistance stimulus. So there's kind of these two kind of acute and, and chronic interference effects, I guess. And does that tie into 
say if you had to do a, you were doing strength sessions which focused on hypertrophy, you can generate a, a session that creates the right metabolic environment for hypertrophy type adaptations to occur, even when slightly fatigued from something other training. Whereas for like maximal strength and maximal power output or speed strength, you need that that residual fatigue not to be there because all of a sudden the decreases in neuromuscular output is then going to clearly affect your ability to do that in the strength session and therefore you don't improve as much because it's been your, your neuromuscular system is almost like knackered yeah yeah definitely yeah there, there there've been many studies that have shown concurrent training to induce improvements in say maximal dynamic strength and, and lean body mass but measures explosive power up uh are hindered. So yeah, I think it, it you know it, it comes back to yeah what you were saying about you know more neuromuscular mechanisms are probably at play here. So you know factors that are going to affect your muscles' ability to like the rapid activation of of, of motor neurons are going to be you know n- negatively negatively affected. And it, like you say, in terms of the hypertrophy, that probably sways a little bit more into like some of the molecular signaling. That's probably a little bit more of my, my background. And so the idea behind that is that when we do any exercise, we switch on signal, molecular signals in our muscle that respond to some sort of contractile stimulus. It might be an endurance stimulus, it might be a resistance stimulus, but we're switching on these like pathways, if you will, that when you repeatedly switch these, these proteins on and, and these signaling pathways, they are involved in promoting specific adaptations. So... In the case of endurance exercise, some of the classic ones that are studied is like AMPK, P53, PGC1-alpha. These are all like targeted genes and proteins that when they're repeatedly stimulated over time, they, they switch on this kind of process that leads to improvements in mitochondrial biogenesis, where we increase the number and the function of our, our mitochondria and, and other like angiogenesis and, and other structural and functional adaptations that promote endurance adaptations. And with resistance exercise, I mentioned before, the mTOR pathway is a, is a classic study pathway that's stimulated by resistance exercise that promotes protein synthesis. And when we're repeatedly stimulating that pathway, we, we get an increase in muscle proteins. And so there's this idea from a molecular point of view that one pathway might interact or interfere with another. And a lot of this evidence comes from cell culture studies and studies in rodents. So there's, there's another classic one that was by Phil Atherton back in 2005, where they basically stimulated rodent muscle with an endurance type stimulus. So very low frequency, but prolonged stimulations. And then a resistance type stimulus, so really high frequency stimulation. And then they looked at like the pathways that were switched on and what they found is that when you, when you stimulate the muscle with an endurance-type stimulus, it switches on this, this AMPK mitochondrial-type you know, signaling pathway. And when you switch on the resistance path, when you give a resistance stimulus, sorry, you then get this switching on of the mTOR pathway. And so it kind of brought up, up this idea of that you know, when you do one, you're going to downregulate the other and, and, and vice versa, and that you know, concurrent training may induce a, a negative molecular environment for your muscles to adapt. But in, in humans, uh, first of all, you know, again, there's, there's very few studies that have, have kind of explored this. There's very little evidence in humans to suggest that this is, this is happening. And in fact, there's studies showing concurrent training can initiate similar, if not greater, signaling responses in the muscle. So very different to what we see in these like very tightly controlled cell culture and rodent studies. Like when we look at humans, there's a lot more variation and, and there, there isn't enough conclusive evidence to say that there's, there's this molecular interference effect and that, you know, if I do a resistance exercise and then do an endurance exercise, it's going to switch off mTOR and I'm not going to adapt sort of thing. Um, I think some of, the, some of the reasons why that is, why there's like such an inconsistency between what we see in these, in these cell culture and rodent studies and what we see in human studies is a lot of these techniques can be quite variable and have a lot of error and variability in, in the techniques themselves. And we're obviously looking at humans and we're, who, 
you know, you've got individual responses to training and nutrition and, and things like that. And also a lot of these studies have very small sample sizes as well. So it's, it's, it's often quite difficult to see clear effects unless we have like hundreds of people doing these studies. So yeah, at the moment, you know, my, my, own, my own research, we, we looked at this and I'm probably rambling on a bit now, but we, we wanted to explore this, this molecular interference effect and specifically from the context of concurrent exercise order. So does the order in which you do these exercises affect the subsequent, you know, signaling responses that we see? And we also kind of wanted to look a little bit about a training status as well and, and how that impacts the signaling responses. And so we, we did this 10-week training study. And in the first week and the 10th week, we took a series of muscle biopsies. So on the first day of each week, the participants did either resistance-only training resistance then endurance or endurance then resistance and we took biopsies like before and after each exercise bout throughout the day and then repeated all of that again in week 10. So it's a big study like I think it was 13 biopsies per person and about I think we collected about 340 odd biopsies in total and basically what we found is that there were there were, haven't really seen any clear differences between the resistance only group and the concurrent groups and the exercise order on the effects of signaling responses. We just kind of see this generic kind of response to the exercise. And we also looked at rate changes in muscle protein synthesis. And we found that there were no differences between the concurrent groups and the, res and the resistance only group in terms of how that training stimulated muscle protein synthesis. So yeah, I, it's just a, another piece in the puzzle at the, at the moment. Yeah, certainly. I mean, whenever I, I, I think of concurrent training, people automatically go straight away to, oh, it's the AMPK that's blunting the mTOR pathway. They go straight yeah. for the molecular. Whereas, yeah. as say, as coaches or the stuff that we can manipulate, which is technically the training session itself, the, most, the thing we have most control over is how much acute and chronic fatigue we can create with our programming. Yeah. So it's, it's weird how the molecular side seems to be more well-known regarding the interference effect compared to yeah. basic residual fatigue which you should know anyway if you're you're programming because you should be you should be keeping that into consideration even if you were doing concurrent training or just focusing on strength or just focusing on endurance but yeah fascinating to hear especially your work because you know that's something that's relatively well known in the sports science world and you're coming here saying well you know yes cell culture studies saying this but from our work or our limited work in humans, actually, mm. it's not really saying that at all. And while we understand there might be differences in our measurement techniques and the error associated with that, we still don't really know if this actually, this interference effect molecularly actually exists. So that's really quite, <laughs> it's really quite a fascinating look at current training. And maybe one of the reasons why we're seeing, especially in the last five years, so many people really pushing the boundaries of concurrent training where you're seeing people yeah. you know, squatting 250 kilos and still running uh, a sub five minute mile. You know, these aren't, you know, ex sports, but if you join them together, that's really quite impressive. So yeah, it does, it does kind of explain a lot as well of what's going on. Yeah. And I think um, the, the monitoring of fatigue is, an interesting one and an important one. I know, I think I, I did li I listen to the episode that you did previously with Johnny Payne and, and talks a little bit about, yeah, monitoring, you know, how your, your athletes or your clients or even yourself, if you're training, a feeling kind of coming into the, coming into the sessions, because yeah, that is going to have a huge effect on, you know, motivation to train. And in our training study, we kind of took a few additional kind of secondary measures and it, so this is in the in the performance paper that was published last year. So we, we just asked our participants to complete a, a simple kind of well-being questionnaire coming into the coming into each session, and then also used session RPE to kind of get an indication of their internal load after each session. And that in itself was was quite interesting. When we looked at the resistance training sessions that the participants completed. The guys who had done a hit session, an endurance session before coming into that resistance session, were reported worse scores for you know well-being, soreness, I think stress and mood, and in terms of the internal load scores, so the session RPE scores, they perceived that resistance session to be a lot harder 
than the other two groups who were either just doing resistance training alone or doing resistance then endurance. And so we didn't, that, those were the only differences in kind of subjective perceptions that we, that we picked up on. We didn't see any differences when we, when we looked at the endurance training session. But I, I thought it was interesting with that, that, in that resistance training session. It just more, more as a reminder that like to, to look into that, that sort of stuff. And I even just, you know, anecdotally speaking to participants, like some of them in the hit then resistance group would say that they didn't enjoy particularly training that way. And they would normally do their, they would normally train the other way around. So obviously, you know, when we're talking about like trying to improve, you know, maximize like athletic performance and things like that, then we might, you know, we've got to incorporate and be guided by like scientific principles that are going to get these athletes to the, the top of their potential. But also for like untrained and recreationally active people who are just looking to kind of get fit and, and improve their, their overall strength and endurance fitness, I think you know, taking into account your personal preferences when it comes to exercise order is also important. And that, you know, you may not need to worry too much about like the order in which you're doing it. If if doing your cardio first, then your weights is what's going to get you into the gym and, and and training, then absolutely go with that. Like, I don't know, like any, any training's better than, than none, you know, at, at some levels. That kind of touches on what I wanted to ask next was if you were doing an endurance session and a strength session on the same day, which order would you have it? Maybe in the AM, strengthen the PM or vice versa. I guess, you know, if it's their preference because of wellness or, you know, RPE values from the work you've done, sort of yeah. or whatever you feel is not going to affect that second session the most, just do that one first. That kind of does make sense. Do you think previous training would really affect that as well. So for example, I would classify myself as slightly more strength trained than endurance trained. So because of yeah. that, my perception of how hard an endurance session is, is probably higher than a, than a strength session. And for yeah. someone that's been doing running, you know, as a runner, I've been running for years, you know, a hard interval session on a track is probably going to perceptually fatigue them less than a intense gym session. Do you think that's like a real big factor when it comes to maybe making a decision or ordering training within a day? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't say I know too much in terms of training status and the effects that might have on like perceptions of effort and kind of motivation to train and that sort of thing. But in terms of the effects of training status on concurrent training adaptations, there was actually a, re uh, a really interesting meta-analysis that was published earlier this year that... And, and for, I guess, for listeners who might not be familiar with what a meta-analysis is, it's basically where you combine the results of several studies that are, you know, ra rather than doing an individual research project, you kind of set a search criteria and collate all of the results from studies that meet that criteria. And it, it's an opportunity to kind of give you an overall look of what's happening in the field. So as I mentioned before, you know, with some studies that have very few participants, you, you might be limited because... You don't have enough participants to see any big effects. Well, then by combining all of those results together, you then suddenly got data points from like, you know, hundreds, if not, you know, thousand participants. And so you can kind of have a better indication of, of what's happening. And, and so there was this meta-analysis published that I think is, you know, the first of its kind really to try and quantify the effects of participant training status on dynamic strength was, was the main variable that they looked at. And it's a really difficult one because... How do you define training status? There's a lot of variation in terms of the definitions between studies. You know, at, at what point are you considered trained? So like in my study, for example, I got people who we classified as, as moderately active. They were sort of exercising two to three times a week, but weren't following a structured training program, which is what was a sort of definition that was used in, in this particular meta-analysis. And so, you know, the guys in my study, they trained for 10 weeks are they classed as trained by the end of that, that 10 weeks? Probably, probably not, but the, so in, the, in this meta-analysis, the untrained participants, they classified as not doing, being either sedentary or not having done any structured training for three months prior. And then I think moderately trained were those who, again, hadn't really done a structured training period for three months. More well, testing my memory now. But they, they were sort of habitually exercising, exercising a couple of, a couple of times a week, 
And then the, the trained were either considered athletes or had like a prolonged training history longer than three months. I might have to double check that, those, de those definitions. But the overall outcomes of the study were that for the development of dynamic strength, the interference effect was a lot more profound and, and significant in the trained participants. So par trained participants from the studies that were included had a, a significant interference effect to dynamic strength. They didn't see an effect for untrained participants. And they, they also didn't report an effect for moderate, uh, moderately trained people. But the results kind of suggested that it, it was kind of heading that way. You know, it's one of those, it's not quite statistically significant, but it's that in between. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're, you're a few points off, you know, getting close to significance. But, but, but yeah, the most, the most profound effect were in highly trained individuals. And again, that, that was also, they did a few sub-analyses trying to look at, at how some of these training variables affected that interference effect. And it was more profound when sessions were performed in the same day uh, and less than 20 minutes recovery between sessions compared to a longer recovery period of at least two hours or more. So I guess the, it seems like there, there may be potential for a, a greater interference effect as you become more trained. And again, I guess not to go off on too much of a tangent down the molecular route here, but some of the studies in that have looked at these molecular responses to, to training do suggest that when you're completely untrained and you do any type of kind of exercise, be it endurance or resistance, these kind of adaptive molecular pathways in your muscle are kind of all firing, like everything's being switched on. It's just like, you know, the, the muscle is just trying to adapt to this unfamiliar stress. And then over a period of time of, of like structured training and as, as you continue with that, that training program, the molecular responses start to become more refined and more mode specific. You know, there's potential that as you become more highly trained and as these sort of signaling responses become more specific to each mode, that that's where you might start to see this, this molecular interference effect. Now, again, as I say, we didn't see it in ours and we did a 10 week study, but again, you could argue are those participants trained by the end of, of 10 weeks and really what, you, what you'd want is to get a group of people who are completely untrained and then follow them for like two, three years of, of regular and current training and, and resistance-only training and endurance-only training. You know, we'll do a few biopsies along the way and, and track how that, how that changes and, and really change their training status. But again, it's, I guess, a question of if anyone's listening and has the money to fund that, I, please... <laughs> Drop me a drop me a line and yeah it's it's just a case of like resources and, and, and time and uh, you know we we can instead look at, at cross sectional studies so there was a you know a, a, a really interesting study by Vernon Coffey back in 2006 in, in John Hawley's group where they got highly trained endurance and highly trained resistance athletes who weren't doing concurrent training they were purely training for those those modes. And what they did is they got them to do their, do an endurance session, do a resistance session, and then they swapped over and did their sort of unfamiliar mode. And, and again, what they found is that like the, the participants who were strength trained, when they did cycling, there was a, you know, a big increase in this AMPK protein that's like sort of detects, you know, molecular, kind of molecular stress in the cell. But when the cyclists did the, the, the cycling, you didn't see that response. And likewise, when the cyclists did a resistance training session, there was a big increase in AMPK. So again, sort of suggesting a big molecular um, metabolic stress. And also they saw an increase in some of the proteins that are involved in, in protein, protein synthesis and translation. But for the strength trained guys, when they did a resistance session, there weren't any kind of significant increases. It was a much dampened response. So it suggests that as, as we become more trained, the, the responses in the muscle become, you know, more mode specific and, and more, I guess, dampened. Though, you know, those guys are used to doing those modes. But then when we crossed over and did a, an unfamiliar bout of exercise, it's like everything's being switched on. So, yeah, as I say, like, yeah, training status is definitely going to have a, a big effect on, on whether you see, I think, an interference effect or not. We perhaps just don't have enough long-term studies to really, you know, be able to kind of track the time course of, of when, that, when that occurs. No. Really cool. And on top of that, you said there was a, a lack of more the elite side of participants get involved. 
kind of understand because if they were competing in a particular sport, they wouldn't really want to take 12 weeks out of their training for it to do a particular study where yeah. the study's aims were to find something out regardless of what the aims of the sport are. So it must be quite hard to find out that information. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, if they're, if they're more trained in their particular sport, their volumes and intensities of training that sport are going to be higher as well. And if we know that those particular factors could influence this as well, that's more information that we kind of show. Well, it's information that shows that the interference effects could be larger because they can train harder at their specific mode. Yeah, vol- you know, volume and, and frequency are definitely two variables that are, I guess need to be properly managed. And uh, again, in terms of specific studies looking at, at chain, the effect of volume and, and frequency, there haven't been all that many done to like empirically test the, the effects of them. But in terms of the, the frequency of concurrent training... There was a study done by I think Thomas Jones from Northumbria University, and he basically looked at the effects of comparing resistance-only training three days a week to two concurrent groups. So whereby one of the groups, they did concurrent training three days a week back-to-back, and another group, they did concurrent training, but they only did it every third day. So they did two sessions of you know, resistance-only, and then on that third day, they did endurance training. And from a strength development kind of perspective they showed that as the frequency of concurrent training increased the the adaptations to strength were were lower than the group that just did sort of every every third day so uh, along with that there's another kind of highly cited meta-analysis from back in in 2012 which also looked at the you know looked at some of these sub variables and and how they affect strength hypertrophy and, and power and they suggested that the adaptations of, of, of strength, muscle mass and power were lower as you increased the duration per session of, of the endurance training as well as the, the number of sessions per week. So there, there's no kind of, I guess, like hard and fast rule or a specific number, but it, the overall kind of looking at the literature at the moment, it's sort of, and studies that have shown an interference effect and those that haven't, it kind of seems like three sessions or less seems to be a, a kind of good number to work off to try and, you know, in terms of a frequency to minimise the, the interference effect. Just kind of from the perspective of endurance training, as I say, a lot of my background has kind of looked at endurance training affects resistance adaptations, but what about the endurance athletes? You know, they need to incorporate resistance training in, in their into their programmes as well. And there's actually some pretty compelling evidence to support the the inclusion of resistance training into endurance training for, for, for improving endurance performance, which I guess seems, may, may seem a bit, a bit surprising, but there have been a number of studies that have shown cycling and running performance to be improved by adding heavy resistance training. And it, it's particularly studies have incorporated heavy, heavy resistance training or explosive resistance training. Quite often it's, it's sort of two days a week for eight to 12 weeks. And they, they report, you know, quite significant improvements in time trial performance, improvements in running and cycling economy and, and, and things like that. So it's, it's kind of weird, like the interference effect seems to like go one way, but, but, not the, but not the other. Certainly, you know, from an acute perspective, you still have the same concerns, you know, do, doing a resistance training session is going to, there's going to be, depending on how close you do them together, there's going to be the risk of residual fatigue and neuromuscular fatigue and all that, that sort of stuff as well. So that needs to be managed on an acute perspective. But there have been a number of training studies with an endurance athletes, elite cyclists, runners, rowers, and that's those kind of populations that have shown performance improvements with heavy resistance training. Now, obviously, you know, if you're, you're listening and you're not from a, a resistance training background, then First and foremost, you've got to kind of work your way up and, and get the technique right, start light first, and don't just go into the gym next time and, and start lifting the heaviest weights you can. And because I told you to, that's <laughs> but certainly, you know, with the right program, even two days a week, as I say, for eight to 12 weeks. And interestingly enough, you know, depending on the phase of the, the competition or training that you're in, 
there are some studies showing that those adaptations in maximal force and running economy and things like that can be maintained even with as little as one resist, one heavy resistance training session a week for about 20 weeks. So, you know, for endurance athletes, it might be possible to, you know, if you're in a, a general training phase, increase the resistance training maybe two, three days a week. And then as you start to move towards more competition-specific training, bringing that back to sort of maybe two sessions a week. And then when you're in competition, even one session a week has been suggested to be sufficient to kind of maintain those adaptations while you're, while you're competing. That's wicked and kind of leads into one of my final questions, actually, especially what you were saying around the minimal you need to do to try and maintain a certain level of strength is really quite telling. You know, people, if they want to improve both components, endurance and strength, maybe sometimes they probably might be doing too much. They could probably still improve by reducing the overall volume or frequency, but still combine them. So it's going to be individual dependent. But then your other thing you said around less sessions a week and you shouldn't really be too much affected. Because I'm thinking a lot of people that will listen to this podcast won't be in a situation where they can train like two to three times a day. They might be able to get a good session, maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half a day. So you'd like to think quite possibly that you're only training once a day and you spread out endurance and strength training appropriately throughout the week hopefully that's a good way of actually minimizing the level of the interference effects and you might be able to improve both concurrently or slightly more on endurance you're going through like an endurance phase you slightly push that going through a strength phase slightly push that but either way you can still improve both if you have you know without having loads and loads of volume or frequency yeah yeah definitely like it's kind of difficult because when you talk about these these training variables and how best to kind of minimize the interference effects like i find myself going around in circles probably much as i've I've probably done a bit on this podcast like because you can't talk about one and then like not then factor in all of the others like for example yeah best case scenario you know if you're trying uh to train currently the longer recovery you can leave the better. So, you know, if you're able to do both on different days, then perfect. As you say, some people might um, not be able to to train twice a day, kind of separated by a period of hours, and they might have to do both in the same session. Potentially athletes, potentially, you know, even just recreational gym goers, you want to get them both done in the same session because it's time efficient, you know, everyone's got busy lives. So then what do you do? So then the then your recovery time's limited. So the order then kind of potentially becomes more important. And I know we talked about sort of potential subjective effects of that, but I guess more going back a little bit on, onto the exercise order and for, you know, same session training, if you're doing cardio and, and resistance training in the same session, what the literature currently suggests is that for dynamic strength improvements, it may be better to perform your resistance first. Whereas adaptations like VO2 max, body compositional changes don't seem to have as much of an order effect. The other sort of conclusion that I've sort of gave in our paper is, you know, yeah, in addition to sort of being guided by personal preference, is also just being guided by your, your, your training goals and what your particular targets are for whatever phase of training you're in. And again, it sounds like common sense, but I think it is. Like if you're, if you're trying to improve resistance adaptations and that's your, that's your goal, it would make sense to do that first when you're fresh. You're, you're going to be able to lift as whatever loads that you've, you've been prescribed. And then, you know, the cardio is supplementary. So, you know, I'll do that afterwards and I'm not as bothered if, if I don't get as quality session for that. Then you might kind of go into a phase where actually, you know, I want to get my cardio up and I want to improve my endurance adaptations and get a good stimulus in those sessions. Well, then do those first again if you have to do those in the same session and, and perhaps, you know, play around with the, the resistance training load and, and so that you may not be able to lift as much in those sessions because of that residual fatigue, but, you know, you, you've kind of made, made that choice because the goal is, is endurance training. So it's, it's just balancing that based on what your goals are, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Ultimately, when you're planning the week, you're going to have what we like to call our hot sessions. They're the ones that are going to be the ones where intensity is probably at its highest. And if you use like a bit of like an 80-20 Pareto's rule type of thing, like key exercises or key sessions which are going to create the response that we want from the week, 
and the rest is all supplementary. So ultimately, whatever falls into that 20%, it could be if you're trying to develop, I don't know, weightlifting performance, it could be like the key lift of that session. Make sure that goes first because that's when you want to yeah. be most fresh and then do whatever you can to, with the rest of the training week to try and make sure that you are freshest at the point where you know that that particular training stress is going to link most to your training goals. So it comes to, you know, general, it comes to general sort of strength and conditioning practice in a way and yeah. week effectively. Yeah, like when you when you boil it down and like, I don't know, when I've been talking to, to people or they've asked me about like my research and that sort of thing, like, I don't know, sometimes I think people are a bit surprised that it's, the recommendations are kind of, they seem like just, you know, common sense, like, yeah, like I say, just training principles 101. Like, you know, it's, it's kind of easy to get wrapped up in a lot of the other stuff, like the molecular side of things. And, you know, it definitely does does have a place and certainly what we're trying to explore more of. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's like, what are your goals? And do, you know, manage your training appropriately as you can, you know, with recovery in between and, you know, doing the right things, I guess, nutritionally. And that could, you know, be a whole other topic and just doing these things that are, are going to help you to, to achieve your goals. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I mean, I definitely think it's really important to know the science behind what's actually going on in the, in the human. Oh, body. definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, you're right. As in, certain people uh, probably place too much emphasis sometimes on certain things, which then affects their programming decisions. Where, yeah, uh, yeah. So, can be used for good, maybe used for something that might not be as they intended, maybe. But, <laughs> yeah, Matt, thank you so much for that. That was absolutely brilliant. Where can people find you? especially your research in this area? I'd say the probably best, best is on uh, Twitter. I, I wouldn't say I'm hugely active on, on social media, but yeah, Twitter is uh, it's just Matt underscore Lee one. I'm not quite sure how I managed that. I wasn't particularly early to the Twitter party or anything, but yeah, just, just Matt underscore Lee one. Yeah, just shoot, shoot me a message. Yeah, more than, more than welcome to, to get in touch. I've got a research gate profile as well if anyone's interested in looking at and, um, any of the papers as they hopefully come out soon. Yeah. Yeah, definitely recommend everyone listening to, if you want to find out a little bit more about this area, check out Matt, especially on his ResearchGate and his uh, Google Scholar profile. That's how I first came across his work. Oh, yeah, Google Scholar. I forget about that. <laughs> yeah, so do I. Yeah, put so, that up as well. <laughs> that's how I first came across your work, and then I wanted to learn more, so I got in contact. But So thank you so much for coming on to the Progress Theory. No problem at all. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Cheers, pal. Thank you.